Chapter Fifteen of The Ghosts of Piccadilly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Ghosts of Piccadilly by G. S. Street. Chapter Fifteen. Some Other Houses. This is a book of personalities more than of anything else, but one must not be too exigent in the matter or omit altogether this or that building or event because no decisively individual person comes out of it. Buildings, too, may have a personality of their own, which, provided they are gone from our visible life, may fit these pages. There's the St. James's Hall, for example, which stood for something definite while it lived, and is now no more. When the lute is broken, sweet sounds are remembered not, says Shelley, but many a lover of good music must sigh, as he passes in Piccadilly, the place where it stood. More often she than he, I suppose, since one's recollection of Monday Pops is of audiences mostly feminine. For my part, I fear my association with the hall chiefly relates to the Christie minstrels, whose agreeable mixture of sentimental ballads and comic songs, interspersed with the lively dialogue of the funny man at the corner and the serious man in the middle, delighted my youth. Dear creatures, I can still see the whites of their eyes. Then there was the Egyptian hall, on the other side of the way, so lately abolished, where an earlier generation flocked to Albert Smith, and a later to Masculine and his wonders, happily still with us somewhere else. And now am I rewarded for my latitude, for by right of the Egyptian hall there comes to haunt Piccadilly a personality most distinct, sad, touching, and tragical. I mean poor Hayden, the painter. In 1846 he exhibited here his Burning of Rome by Nero and The Banishment of Aristides, and at the same time as the luck of his life had it, Tom Thumb was being shown here to our enthusiastic and intelligent public. Poor Hayden! They rush by thousands, he wrote in his diary, to see Tom Thumb. They push, they fight, they scream, they faint, they cry help and murder, and oh, and ah! They see my bills, my boards, my caravans, and don't read them. Their eyes are open, but their sense is shut. It is an insanity, a rabies, a madness, a furor, a dream. Tom Thumb had twelve thousand people last week. B. R. Hayden, one hundred and thirty-three and a half. The half a little girl. Exquisite taste of the English people. Two months later, he killed himself in his studio. Well, may his spirit linger here, where this last failure with the rejection of his cartoon for the decoration of the palace at Westminster, finally broke his heart. And yet I do not know if one should speak of poor Hayden, for all his disappointments and embarrassments. He was a born and incessant fighter, and such men generally find a pleasant savour in life. Fighting debt and disappointment may be sad work, but fighting people is glad work, and Hayden was always fighting people. Moreover, he was fighting academicians, and artists who fight academicians always seem to have a peculiar zest and delight in the business. Nor, whatever his personal fortune, was he always unsuccessful in a cause. When Lord Elgin brought the marbles, which go by his name, to London, 
and stored them in Gloucester House, which was 137 Piccadilly, the academicians poo-hooed them, and Hayden took the lead in enthusiastic eulogy, and, as we know, it was Hayden who prevailed. Then, too, he had a complete and indomitable belief in himself, in all that he did and all that he said. His theory of the painter's art, which, to put it simply, was that portrait painting was rubbish and that imaginative historical pictures were high art, the real thing, has gone the way of other dead theories, and of his practice a specimen or two may remain obscurely. One hangs in a strand restaurant, but he believed thoroughly in both, and that alone is enough to make a normally healthy man a happy one. Again, his method of fighting debt, which was simply incurring fresh debt, from friends or patrons or money-lenders indifferently, however much it may prolong the deplorable situation, does not involve, on the whole, the maximum of discomfort. He is said, with verisimilitude if not with truth, to have been the original of Charles Lamb's great borrower, the man who went splendidly forth borrowing and to borrow, who anticipated no excuse and found none. The description of his appearance a cheerful open exterior, a quick jovial eye, a bald forehead just touched with grey, cana fides, applies to Hayden's, and can such an appearance be that of an unhappy man? One pities the last moments, the tragic end, which a definite malady of the brain induced, but on the whole this was a happy man. I revised my description of his ghost. Even in Piccadilly, outside the scene of his defeat at the Egyptian Hall, I think he still carries himself bravely, angry, no doubt, and perhaps violent, but not poor Hayden. Being on this subject, we may as well go down to the corner of Park Lane, where stood Gloucester House until only the other day. There was a scene of pleasant enthusiasm there when Hayden took Fuseli to see the Elgin Marbles, and the latter capped everything that other enthusiast would say with his "'The Greeks were goddess! The Greeks were goddess!' Otherwise this house was remarkable only as that of the late Duke of Cambridge. As indomitable as our painter in his way, he had happily, since the Crimea, nothing personal to fight against but time, and time had seldom a tougher antagonist. It is agreeable to think of this fine octogenarian enjoying his happy life, his stiff opinions, and his splendid Guelph constitution to the last. Let us cross the road. The Green Park is not, as a whole, part of our subject, but the Ranger's Lodge, or, more properly, the Deputy Ranger's Lodge, which stood inside it, opposite Down Street, until 1841, was numbered 150 Piccadilly. A cheerful, not uncomely house to live in, white with a dome over part of it, surrounded by trees, built in 1768 by Robert Adam, but designed, according to a popular and rather improbable belief, by George III. George Selwyn wanted the deputy rangership so that he might live opposite his friend, Old Q, but it was given to Lord William Gordon, one of three remarkable brothers. Really an interesting trio, those three Gordons. The third, Lord George, dwarfs the others in notoriety, for he was the Lord George of the Gordon Riots. Of course, it may not be the kind of distinction a family would most care about, that a member of it should incite a mob of bigots, assisted by a mob of criminals, to terrorise London for days, and burn an immense amount of property, 
and that he should subsequently be sentenced to Newgate for a libel on the Queen of France, and die there a convert to Judaism. The distinction, however, cannot be denied. The eldest brother, the third Duke of Gordon, wrote that excellent and famous song, There's Cauld Kyle in Aberdeen, and ducal poets are not frequent. Also, he was the husband of Jane, the rival on the Tory side, an inferior rival, it must be said, but still a rival, of Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, on the Whig. A handsome woman, this Duchess of Gordon, and a very potent lady. A fair woman illumines the life of our Lord William also, none other than Lady Sarah Lennox, who ran away with him from her first husband, Sir Charles Bunbury, the father of the turf. Their union was but temporary, and divorce is not perhaps so rare an incident as poetry, certainly was not then, in the life of the aristocracy. Still, to run away with the most beautiful woman of one's time, the beloved of a king and the mother of heroes, is a distinction, however much to be regretted, reader, by you or me, in the life of any man. There is no mention of Lord William in Lady Sarah's charming letters, her worthy and affectionate husband and her sons, the Napiers, may well have banished from her mind all sentimental regret for this lover of her youth. Whether she left him or he her does not appear. A romantic reader is permitted to fancy her sighing in after years, when she went along Piccadilly and passed the ranger's lodge. Lord William did not die until 1823, when, if I remember rightly, Lady Sarah was living in London, old and blind. We return to paint and painters for a moment. Lord William Gordon had a lovely daughter, who sat to Sir Joshua Reynolds for his Heads of Angels, of which most of us have seen a print, in 1786. The picture was in the lodge until Lord William's death, and is now in the National Gallery. It is somewhat melancholy to relate that the original of the lovely child in the picture died in the lodge, an old maid, in 1831. Ten years later, Lady William, the last survivor of the household, died also, and then the house was pulled down. Two figures of fallow deer which adorned it, cast in the old sculpture yard in Engine Street, now Brick Street, are all that remain of it, or, so far as I know, of the famous yard itself, they are to be seen on either side of Albert Gate, as you go into Hyde Park, at Knightsbridge, and of the Deputy Ranger's Lodge let so much have been said. We go up Piccadilly again as far, nearly, as Stratton Street, because I have not yet discoursed on the stirring and noisy event which happened at number 80 in 1809. Sir Francis Burdett had married a daughter of Thomas Coutts, by whom, as everybody knows, he was the father of the Baroness Burdett Coutts, and lived next door to his father-in-law. It is to the credit of Thomas Coutts that he supported his son-in-law in his political activity, by which he had nothing to gain. On the contrary, it is said George III withdrew his account from Coutts's bank when Thomas had paid Sir Francis's election expenses. Burdett was a sincere and disinterested reformer of undoubted abuses, and even in his heyday would have seemed to us a very mild politician. In his later years he was on the conservative side, but up to 1830 or so he was regarded as a dangerous radical. Who are now the people's men, my boy, Hobbio? There's I and Burdett, gentlemen, and Blackguard Hunt and Cobbio. 
as Byron said, in the ballad which so infuriated his friend Hobhouse. The trouble, which ended in one of the greatest uproars Piccadilly has known, arose simply from Burdett's printing and selling as a pamphlet, after it had appeared in Cobbett's register, a speech he had made in the House of Commons. The government saw a chance of annoying Sir Francis, who had so often annoyed the government. He was accused of breach of privilege, and the Speaker issued a warrant for his arrest. Then the fun began. Burdett refused to surrender, and entrenched himself in number 80, which was garrisoned by volunteers. The government was not sure of its position, and its lawyers did not know what to advise. The very troublesome body, known as the Westminster Mob, Westminster was Burdett's constituency, saw its opportunity for a congenial row, and flocked to Piccadilly. Then the government turned out lifeguards, in spite of the prayer of the sheriff Matthew Wood, and the Westminster Committee went to support Sir Francis, with the ingenious idea that the civil powers should arrest the officers. What with this and that, it is not surprising that there was a riot, and Wyndham notes in his diary, found lifeguards hunted by and hunting the mob, good deal of disturbance. There must have been nearly as much noise and hubbub in Piccadilly as the motor omnibuses make now. The guards charged, and the mob retaliated with the nickname Piccadilly Butchers. On the fourth day after the issue of the warrant, number 80 was forcibly entered, and Sir Francis, who evidently had a sense of drama, was found in an attitude of studied calm, teaching one of his children the provisions of Magna Charta, and supported by the ladies of his family. A verse of the day commemorates the scene. The lady she sate and she played on her lute, and she sang, Will you come to the bower? The sergeant at arms had stood hitherto mute, and now he advanced like an impudent brute, and said, Will you come to the tower? To the tower they took him, and there he stayed for several weeks, and when he came out, Piccadilly enjoyed another rumpus. People lined the streets all the way from the tower to Stratton Street. Scaffolding was put up in Piccadilly. Banners were made ready with Magna Charta, the Constitution, Burdett forever, and so forth, inscribed on them, and the crowd looked forward to an entertaining procession. Sir Francis, however, seems to have had enough fuss, and went away secretly from the tower by water, a neglect of a politician's first duty, which brought upon him much unpopularity. But the crowd was not to be cheated. It expected a procession, and a procession it would have. So an empty car, accompanied by the banners, was dragged along to Stratton Street, which it reached about eight o'clock, and later on the mob really enjoyed itself. It ordained a general illumination, and smashed the windows of those who refused to light up. So all ended happily. Sir Francis Burdett continued to be a reforming member, and his house in Piccadilly was more than once the centre of an uproar. Walter Scott was plagued by one in 1820, as was told in the chapter on him. Gradually, however, he ceased, becoming a model fox-hunting country gentleman, and quiet, but for the cobblestones and the traffic, would have reigned outside number 80. I protest I have well-nigh exhausted the private houses in Piccadilly, which gave us personalities or events. I shall be grieved if I am proved mistaken, but I think only two remain. One was a very splendid house built on the sites of 146 and 147, towards the end of the 18th century, and it housed a very splendid personage, 
Monsieur Charles Alessandre de Calonne had been comptroller of finances in France, and brought with him something more material than financial knowledge when he removed to England in 1787, for he was able, his excellent taste leading him to Piccadilly, to take the two numbers mentioned, one not contenting him, and to make a fine house of the two, and to set about furnishing it in a manner conforming. Unfortunately, he had not time to finish a noble gallery for his pictures, when the revolution broke out, and loyalty sent him to Coblentz to join the princes. His property also he devoted to the cause, and his pictures were sold by auction. So brief was the period of his splendour in England, but he gives a fine touch to 146 and 147. The other house gives a dramatic and lurid finish to this chapter. I have gone, for my knowledge about it, by the way, to a source so little lurid and dramatic as the Economic Journal for 1891, in which Mr. Henry Higgs has an essay on Richard Cantillon. Richard Cantillon's importance for the study of economics need not concern us. It is enough to mention that he was of importance among the physiocrats, and had a considerable influence on Adam Smith, in a word that he was distinctly somebody, from an intellectual and scientific point of view. Like Calon, a financier, like him also, he was a magnificent man. He was of an ancient Irish family, but was always associated with France, where he made his money, and he wrote his economic work in French. He grew enormously rich by banking, his enemies said by usury. In fact, they went so far as to prosecute him, both in France and England, on this count. He won his cases, but there is no doubt that he made large sums by taking advantage of other people's need for ready money. We won't quarrel about names. In any case, he gained much money and spent it splendidly. After 1720 he lived chiefly in London, but his residence among us does not concern my pages until 1734, when he was living in Piccadilly at the corner of Albemarle Street. Having got him there, unlike Calon, we need not, so to speak, let him go again, for in his house at the corner of Albemarle Street he was both murdered and burned. On May the 14th, a Monday, 1734, Cantillon supped in Queen Square, Westminster, and at ten o'clock was set down at his own door. The evidence of a servant tells us, in the old Bailey Sessions papers, that for about three weeks past his master had taken the key of the street door up into his bedchamber, and, the examinant, believes his reason for doing so was upon some distaste he took to a servant discharged three weeks ago, but that last night he left the key, together with his watch, below in the parlour, and believes it was on account of this examinant's being to go early in the morning to take a box for him in the opera, a glimpse of his artistic tastes because that he gave him directions for that purpose his master last night undressed himself in the parlour as usual i conjecture the coldness of an english may took his candle and book and went up to bed soon after and told the examinant he would read and then there was a fire which consumed the house and cantillon with it at first his blameworthy practice of reading in bed was supposed to have been the cause but it was found out afterwards that the discharged servant of the narrative, one Joseph Denier, alias Le Blanc, had entered the house with the connivance of the other servants, had murdered Cantillon, and set fire to the house, after robbing it, to conceal the crime. 
he escaped to holland the others were tried and acquitted cantillon had had a great reputation for wealth and the londoners of that day thought his house must have been full of money and so we have a weird picture for a piccadilly may morning people bending over the ashes sifting sifting them for gold End of chapter 15